Tory Radio. The best news, interviews and much more. Today it's my great pleasure to be talking to the Member of Parliament for Chatham and Aylesford, Tracy Crouch, a keen sports fan, a keen Spurs fan, we may get to that later if I can forgive her, a former Minister at DCMS, one of the most popular MPs in the House, a footballer, an allotmenteer, a mother, a wife and an MP. Firstly, how do you fit all that in? <laughs> Just good at juggling, I think. Um, <laughs> it's actually, you, you get used to it, I've nearly been an MP for 10 years now and uh, parts of uh, of that have have actually uh, come into being while I've been an MP so it's uh, it's just something you get used to. Well, well let, congratulations on your re-election. I guess firstly how does it feel coming back to the House with such a large Conservative majority? Well the place is very different. Um, I, I have to say it's a much nicer place, not much nicer environment. Uh, I think colleagues mental health was beginning to suffer because of the sheer intense pressure that we were all under. It was very, very tense atmosphere. Um, people were not being particularly nice to each other. The outside world wasn't being particularly nice to, to us. Um, and I have to say, um, now we've got an opportunity to do a lot more creative thinking and, and you know, potentially work on a two-term strategy for government, which is something that hasn't happened since Tony Blair got in in 1997. I think this enables big infrastructure projects um, to be considered. I think it enables us to think creatively about what we want to do. Um, so it's a much nicer place to be working in. I know the Prime Minister wants to stop mentioning the, the, the B word, but I guess officially the deed has, has, has been done, uh, albeit years after the referendum. I guess, do you welcome that and are you confident that you know, we can move forward now and it'll be a success? I do. I don't think I appreciated um, how much Brexit was playing on the minds of ordinary people in their ordinary day jobs and lives. And the day after the general election, I was walking um, through the village I live in and um, a chap came up to me, um, who I know reasonably well. Um, he is a like a, a security worker, um, got a couple of kids, uh, and he just came up to me and he said, you know, it felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders seeing the exit poll. And I just it didn't consciously realise that actually we felt a lot of pressure on us but so did the rest of the nation and actually I think regardless of how people voted in the in the referendum the fact that we were going to move on from where we had been from the stagnation that we had found ourselves in I think was something that many people welcomed whether it was from a business perspective i.e. investment can happen or from a house selling or house buying or what to do with children during the school holidays you know everything mm-hmm. was being completely kind of pressurised because of Brexit and, and I think actually things have moved on quite significantly since then Now the substantive uh, purpose I guess of this interview is to touch upon uh, an issue no no you, you feel strongly about gambling but can we quickly touch upon something that's in the news today, the possibility of regulation on social media firms? Do you, what thoughts do you have on, on this, if any? Um, I'm, I'm actually pro the reforms. I think it's um, social media is, is, is a beast that we can't control in many respects um, for lots of different reasons. And, and actually, where there are aspects that we can look to regulate, I think it's important that we do so. So I know the particular focus um, of some of the... the, the um, 
recommendations today is around content relating to self-harm and suicide. Um, the fact that there are things online that can tell you how to take your own life is extraordinary. Um, and um, I just think that w where we can regulate, we should regulate. Um, and these are important aspects that I think we need to take responsibility for. I mean, so many MPs that, that, that I have spoken to, both, both in a podcast, but actually just in private, have told me about the personal threats that they've received on social media, uh, many of which now have, have actually led to jail terms. Is that an undertold story? And doesn't it actually suggest that something should have been done ages ago because now we're at a point where a line has been crossed and it's almost seen as acceptable online. It's the Wild West. Yeah, I mean, I think... <sighs> I mean, MPs are just one part of the whole ecosystem of, of abuse online. And, and actually, what is different in many respects, we do put ourselves forward for public office. We do put ourselves into the public eye. That doesn't mean that we should be subject to death threats and, and abuse, and I'm regularly called the C word. Um, but um, my concern is actually more about um, how do we protect vulnerable people um, from abuse online or protect them from the exposure of things that perhaps they shouldn't be, ex well, they wouldn't be exposed to in, in an analogue world. The sort of things that when you and I were growing up, you know, we, we wouldn't have any access to. Um, and so I kind of, um, I feel, yes, you know, MPs shouldn't be exempt from uh, abuse, uh, of course not, but the, that at the same time we shouldn't be the reasons it, the abuse of us shouldn't be the reasons why we're trying to tackle um, dangerous online behaviour mm -hmm. uh, You may have listened to uh, some of the podcasts, uh, I certainly don't blame you if you haven't uh, uh, which I've done with the likes of uh, Celine Duncan Smith and Damien Collins on the subject of gambling, obviously you were uh, a minister at DCMS whose remit covered gambling I guess my first question will be, will be very general and I also put it to uh, Ian Duncan Smith are you per se against gambling? No, not at all. And I bet myself. Um, I I bet on football. I bet on politics. Bet on the horses. Um, it's not about being anti-gambling. Um, it's about sort of kind of making sure that, again that you have the right safeguards in place to ensure that people don't get too significant levels of harm in gambling. Much as much as I guess has been written and indeed said about the fixed odds betting terminals and, and the stake, which used to be one hundred pounds a spin. Uh, what was it about them and indeed the stake that concerned you the most? So I think the the main thing about fixed betting terminals, FOBTs for short, is that they were casino content on the high street. Um, we shouldn't, as Conservatives, feel guilty about trying to control these machines. This was uh, an absolute monstrosity from Labour legislation in 2005. And I was here at the time as um, Chief of Staff to David Davis, and we had, in that sort of kind of... Um, revised shadow cabinet that Michael Howard did. We had responsibility for DTMS, and we, along with the rest of the uh, of Parliament, got obsessed with the issue around um, big casinos, super casinos, and took our eye off the ball when it came to um, the machines uh, that you could have in bookmakers. And these machines attracted um, uh, people um, to go and to play with them. They were highly addictive um, machines. The content on there was designed to be addictive. Um, and the, the bookmakers were making an enormous amount of profit off the back of people feeding these machines, um, obsessively feeding the, the machines. So um, we... 
you know, I, I felt very strongly about the need to do something about it. 75% of new bookmakers that opened, opened in deprived communities, which kind of showed you that they were trying to feed off the back of those that hoped to win big. And it's always the hope that kills. <laughs> um, and so um, I, I never felt that I was doing anything anti-conservative about looking at these machines. Um, and I didn't ban them, just basically reduce the harm from them. You, you, you won the day and, and someone said, yet yeah, you resigned over the, if I'm right, over the timing of the implementation. Was that the reason you decided to leave government? And, and what would you say to those who say, well, you know, you won the argument. Why resign when you win? No, well, I did win the argument. Um, and actually, I won the argument with the help of lots of people across government. Um, uh, the Prime Minister was, at the time, when we started to discuss this in the Cabinet as Foreign Secretary, he'd been opposed to these machines as Mayor of London. He'd seen the devastation that they had seen in some of his poorest communities that he represented as Mayor, um, and he was on board. Ian was still at um, Work and Pensions, and he was seeing people, you know, it, it, I know it doesn't quite work like this, but going, you know, picking up the gyro and going straight down the bookies, um, and then, you know, wondering why they weren't able to feed their families for, for a week. Um, uh, from a health perspective, we've seen an enormous increase in, in mental health conditions, so the health secretary supported it. Um, education secretary supported it because of, in terms of um, the impact it was having on you know, wider family issues. So actually there was an enormous amount of support across government that did enable me to, to win the argument. But the implementation um, date was due to be delayed by the Chancellor, in part because they never really wanted to lose the revenue that the machines were bringing into the Treasury. And that was the wrong reason to be blocking it. Um, and um, my resignation, I think, you know, lit, lit a fuse, really, that enabled Parliament to really flex its muscles and show that it wasn't going to stand for this. And I kind of think, if you think about what happened last year, if, for example, we had delayed it till October, we were in the middle of Brexit. There was no budget. There was no financial statement. There was no changes to revenue. So actually, it wouldn't have come in in October at all. And so the point was, it needed to be done as soon as possible. Otherwise, it wasn't going to get done at all. Bookmakers, I think, at the time suggested it would lead to shop closures. And I think since then, 1,200 have, have shut. Uh, do you have any sympathy, I guess, you know, the bookmakers say, have you got any sympathy with, with the job losses? But I guess more specifically, my question is relating to gambling addiction. Do you worry that that may have driven people who were are addicted online? And is that more of a worry than being in a physical shop? Oh, there's lots of things actually in that question that need addressing. Firstly, the bookmakers themselves commissioned research into what all these changes mean. If I had done nothing at all, the bookmakers' own estimates would be that 1,500 shops would close. So no, the state stayed at £100, but the bookmakers would still be closing shops. And that's because they forecast the growth in online anyway. Um, so actually, bookmakers themselves were incentivizing their own staff to get people onto their online apps. It reduces administration, business rates, and so on. Um, I actually, through the consultation, was getting um, 
responses from people who work in the bookies saying you have to get rid of these machines because they themselves were afraid of them. People, you've seen the footage, you know, people would bash the absolute crap out of these machines if they lost. And quite often bookmakers are single staffed, and so they themselves felt at risk as a consequence. And the final part of that is, am I, you know, did I drive people online? The online thing was happening. Um, and yes, you can play casino content online. Um, and that's that the, the review itself addresses what sort of kind of safeguarding measures need to be put in place for the same way that you do for retail. Um, but at the same time, even to this day, in fact, yesterday, as uh, I got an email thanking me for saving somebody's life because these machines were ripping the core out of people. And, and so do I have any regrets? No, not so ever. Um, do I, am I sorry for, for staff that are losing their jobs? Of course I am. However, the other thing that I would say is that um, I think that the staff in bookmakers are probably one of the best um, retail offering that you can get. Uh, they deal with enormous amounts of cash in quite hostile environments sometimes. So I would have every confidence that someone who worked at a bookmaker would walk into another job in any circumstance. Do, do you see a future in, in actually high street bookmakers or do you think there'll be a generation? Because I can remember my, my grandpa would always used to go in and bet on the horses and I remember his his drawer was full of William Hill pens. <laughs> just, just remember the green and blue as a kid. Uh, do you think in 30 years' time it will be a bit like double glazing shops? You'll think, well, why did you have a physical presence to bet? No, I, don't, I, I still think we'll have bookmakers on our high street. Um, I grew up in Hythe. There was one bookmakers in the high street when I grew up. I think there's now half a dozen. Um, uh, you know, one bookmakers in the high street is fine, as far as I'm concerned. But the, um, the, you know, I think we'll always have bookies on the high street because actually many people book uh, uh, bet once or twice a year, normally on the Grand National or something like that. So um, you'd still want that offering for people to go in and, and place a bet. Um, but there is a significant drive from the bookmakers, as I say, to, to push people online. I don't have, even though I do bet, I don't have an app myself online. Um, because I know that I would <laughs> bet more than um, I probably should. Um, and so um, I think that's where the sort of kind of next focus will be about online harms. Once we've uh, sideways with it, to just quickly uh, look at the lottery, which I'm not sure whether it's classed as gambling or not. It is, yeah. Do you think it's, it's right that kids at 16 can do the lottery? No, I don't. Um, and actually, one of the things that we were seeing is that um, the uh, between 16 and 18, there is an, a growth in problem gambling um, with scratch cards. Um, and so there, there was, a, 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 as part of the gambling review, there was a suggestion that we should raise the age to 18. Um, and I think we should sort of kind of, we, we need to have a uniform kind of, I think we need to have a wide discussion about what is the age of, you know, adulthood, basically, because we're always talking about whether 16-year-olds should be able to vote. Well, we need to have a general kind of discussion now about you know, what, what is a sensible thing for, for 16, 17-year-olds to be able to do. Um, you know, if, if we think that 16-year-olds aren't 
um, able to make right decisions in terms of voting should they be able to um, gamble, which is what the lottery is. I think uh, the £10 scratch cards have been uh, removed, but isn't it, coming back almost to like the number of, of, of bookies, isn't part of that problem the actual physical number of outlets? Because apparently there's something like 37,000 outlets that sell the, the, the lottery that we all play and pick the numbers and literally all of them and a few more sell scratch cards. So that's a huge number of outlets selling what could be seen as an addictive product. I think, I mean, I, the difference there actually, though, is that quite often some of these outlets are in the middle of rural communities. So it's not, it's not quite like for like in that sense. Um, you know, they're, they're just shops, sweet shops, really, with, you know, um, lottery ticket sales points um, so I'm, I'm not so worried about the, the, the outlet issue in terms of um, for, for lottery um, I think the problem with, with bookmakers because so much profit was coming from these machines that they needed to open more um, stores so that they could continue to get the profit from the machines you know the um, you were allowed four in each shop now, if you had four shops on a high street, you've got 16 in the space of such a sort of kind of, um, you know, half a mile or a mile. And you're making something like, you know, nearly 60% profit on each machine. You know, that's sort of kind of uh, basic kind of matters to why you would want to have as many machines. The lottery is very different in that respect. Do you think gambling companies have now become... It was always said that they had a toxic product. Do you think gambling companies are toxic? And one example is that you know they they seem such an easy target now for for media criticism. So not that long ago, the Sunday Times had an article about gambling firms using a database of 28 million children, and it, and the quote in there was to boost the number of young people gambling online. Now, now the industry's totally denied that, that that's what it's for. In, I think in in the Lord's Select Committee a couple, couple of weeks ago. Uh, but is it a case of now it doesn't have to be necessarily true, it just has to be believed and actually there's so much that is believable yeah. about gambling companies that no one really knows what the, the truth and the reality is? I just don't think they've done themselves any favours. I mean, I think that's part of the problem is that they, they've they been so hostile to, I think, what are reasonable concerns about um, harm and exposure that actually all it's doing is it's creating an environment where people have just become very hostile towards the, the gambling industry and it doesn't have to be like that you know I say I'm not anti-gambling I'm pro-responsible gambling and I think when people recognize that actually they are marketing products to children they don't have the right um, they don't, don't have the right safeguards in place that there are opportunities for interventions, particularly online, which is actually a much easier place to regulate because you can see people's behaviours, and they just won't do it. And they won't do it because obviously that's what their profit comes from. I have no problems with gambling companies making profit, but maker always wins, you know. Absolute classic. You know, you go, if you're a sensible person, you know that, you know, <laughs> the, if you're betting on a horse at 16 to 1, it's unlikely you're going to win. <laughs> you know, so um, the, I, I, I think that it's, um, uh, I think the problem is, is they're just so hostile. There's also this major politics within the gambling industry itself. So there is a, um, uh, a section of bookmakers who have real, real retail interests who, 
you know, are hostile towards the online providers. So one of the, the funniest meetings I had was when the retail bookmakers, i.e. those with shops, um, who also have an online presence, but basically have an advert on every high street, um, came into my office to tell me that as parents themselves, they thought there was too much advertising on TV. To which I said, well, you're the chief executives of the bookmakers. Stop commissioning adverts on TV. And they were like, oh, well, it's not us, it's the online lot. And it's just like, oh, my goodness me. You know, it's like the online lot don't have an advert on every high street. So it's just, I just don't think that they help themselves, really. Uh, we'll come back to the question, but you mentioned, mentioned advertising, so let, let's pick up on that, that. Why don't we just ban gambling advertising, including the lottery? Would, would that not solve parts? Because that's what you hear sometimes from parents, is that they're worried that at certain times of the day their kids will start reciting an advert now whether that means that they're going to go and bet whoever you know who, who knows but just let's take it you know, ban the adverts do you know i think we'll end up in that that way i mean i genuinely have mixed views on it and i think one of the good things that's happened since i left dcms is they've split the portfolios of gambling and sport um, and I think that's probably quite a sensible thing to do because I remember sitting in a meeting with um, stakeholders who asked, um, were basically gambling addicts themselves or families of those who had taken their lives with gambling, whose default position is quite often it's ban advertising. And I had to sort of kind of, um, you know, as sensitively as I could, um, highlight how gambling advertising effectively pays for the broadcasting of sport and broadcasting of sport encourages people to get involved and increases participation and therefore it as part of the wider wider ecosystem um it's actually you know banning advertising could have quite a negative impact uh, on sport so you know we all love watching the England football team on ITV well ITV has to pay for advertising in order to pay for its broadcasting rights and of course who pays for the advertising now our, our bookmakers now you can argue that's right or wrong but if you take out bookmakers then what next um, you know do we start sort of kind of banning Mars and Coca-Cola and all that sort of stuff and um, so there's a real genuine um, question as to whether or not we should do it. And I, I do think that we'll end up in that position because I think, again, the bookmakers haven't really helped themselves. If we ban advertising, do we also stop the sponsorship programme? Does that mean that ITV's horse racing no longer exists on the TV? Well, you know, the horse racing for ITV is enormously important, but it's also really important for racing. You know, racing actually has a really different way of how it accumulates its investment. It is, you know, unlike other sports, there is a levy on every bet that goes back into horse racing. Horse racing is a major industry in this country, employs an enormous amount of people, creates enormous productivity, um, and is, is globally identified as one of the best racing industries. So it's just something that, it, it sounds like a really easy position to get to, that's ban advertising, but if you do that, you have to understand the consequences of it. Let's move on to, uh, it's, it's not that recent now, but recent developments where, where it was announced that credit cards would be banned for use in gambling online. I guess my question there is having, I have an app and I think it 
links to a credit card which links to PayPal and lets me bet on the Tories winning a majority in 2017 and losing all my money. How, how does blocking one payment method, I guess, help in the, the, the fight against gambling? And the only reason I asked this, I was listening to uh, people who said they were addicted phoning, I think it was Jerry Ryan who said, well, if I'm addicted, I can just so easily find a way around that, and they, which will cost them more, or is it just to make it slightly more, put another hurdle in to make people think again? So it's really simple. This is about equivalence. You can't use your credit card in a bookmaker. So um, why should you be able to use it online? And um, there is an issue of basically people gambling away effectively money that's not their own I mean I you know I know that's not what it is but it's actually really easy to gamble um, uh, to, to get into a significant amount of, of debt on a credit card and so this is as you say about putting that just an extra safeguard in place I mean I met people I mean I find it extraordinary because I'm you know having got into a significant amount of debt when I first moved to London and worked here for Pittons. Um, the, um, uh, I, I understand debt really well. It was David well. Davis's fault. No, it wasn't. It was, it was actually Walter Sweeney's. Um, but uh, <laughs> there we are. Um, I didn't work till, for David until 2005 and I started working here in 1996, so just an indication of how old I am. Um, but... Um, uh, Having been in debt, I know how hard it is to sort of kind of um, deal with it. And um, it is a spiral decline. And I was astonished when I was talking to people who were on that you know, recovery pathway, who had maxed out every credit card and then you know, absorbed all their debts onto another credit card. Um, I met one lady who remortgaged the house twice without her husband knowing. I mean, I just, it's astonishing that people can get to that level of debt um, and, um, and without any interventions or safeguards. Now, again, when you and I were growing up, we had bank managers, personal bank managers. Why, why did I stop at £15,000 worth of debt? Because my bank manager saw that I was not paying my overdraft every single month, you know, and meeting all the requirements. You don't necessarily have that in this digital world that we live in now. And so people, if you can put in those safeguards, this is, this is good you know, support for people. There was a recent issue, I think, with, with Bucky's streaming live football. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if that's something new, because I remember leaving five pounds in an account so that I could watch baseball on the cheap rather than subscribing to ESPN or something. I guess my question is, you know, betting shops have, you've mentioned the relationship with racing, betting shops have live racing that can only be viewed in a betting shop. What's wrong with an online company having live sports? I, I, I think the particular um, issue came out of the fact that you had to either place a bet or put a deposit in. And, um, and I think, that, you know, the, the other issue is that the Football Association themselves had made a good, big play about ending its relationship with Labrooks because it has seen an increase in the number of its own footballers suffering from gambling addiction issues. And actually, there are a number of really well-known cases of people, footballers, who, young, I mean, remember, these are young men in highly pressurised situations um, who, with a lot of money that they don't know how to save for the future. Um, so the, the Football Association had taken this high moral stance about it and then it discovers that its own broadcasting rights 
selling company had actually done a deal with bookmakers. So um, I think it was a whole host of issues around it. But I think the specific issue about Bet365 was that you had to um, open an account and make a bet um, in order to be able to view it. Do you think gambling addiction, is not the right word, is, is as big an issue as alcohol addiction? Maybe not in terms of numbers that, that, that we know about, but does it need to be treated in the same kind of way? I do. I'm, one of the great joys for me in the last couple of years is that Matt Hancock went from DCMS, Secretary of State, where he was an absolute key ally on trying to tackle harm uh, from gambling, into the Department of Health, which has much larger budget uh, and is responsible for the treatment of addictions and has completely and utterly rewritten the gambling addiction protocols around this. Um, so Simon Stevens has been absolutely fantastic in terms of recognising um, that uh, gambling addiction is a thing. Um, and ju- if I can just sort of kind of say that when I first got a, um, appointed in 2015, I had a meeting with the then um, health minister and they literally had to try and find someone in the Department of Health who had some vague understanding of gambling addiction. It's always been the Cinderella service, um, in part because the numbers of gambling um, addicts have always been lower than drug and alcohol um, and uh, you know so it hasn't been a priority focus but what it hasn't necessarily been understood before is that gambling addiction has a significant impact on mental health and suicide rates and I think that's where suddenly people started to take note as to why we needed to address this more and Matt and his team have been brilliant in terms of improving access to addiction treatment centres, NHS addiction treatment centres across the country now so there will be more than just the one addiction treatment centre that we had before. We mentioned uh, sports advertising what about sports sponsorship so should somebody like I guess Ralph Rimmer in charge of the Rugby Football League be worried that the Challenge Cup has been sponsored by Ladbrokes and Cole should they be looking to move away from it I'd love it I'd love to say yes um, but I just that's where I start to get a bit nervous um, in terms of political interventions um, it, forget rugby league for a second. If you take, if you go back to football, I mean, FIFA has quite firm views about political interventions into the way football is run. So if we turn around to the Premier League and said, right, that's it, stop all relationship, get your clubs to stop all relationships with gambling companies, there may well be a view as to whether or not that is some sort of kind of political intervention. Um, but um, the, I, I hope that actually sport in general is beginning to get a better understanding about public views on gambling um, and that families in particular want to come and enjoy their sports without their children being bombarded with gambling adverts. Um, and I think, you know, there's, we, there's just something that it's just I think it's we're on the turn I think we're beginning to, to, to turn that but I also know that it's a, it's a lucrative part of, of the sport I mean I remember going to see Millwall um, about a planning issue that they had and as sports minister and it was off season so um, and, you know all the hoardings have been taken down and I said to um, the chief exec at the time I said could you you know do me a favour can you not have gambling adverts and he said I'd love to not have gambling adverts but the problem is they pay so well and ultimately in the day football and any other sport is a business 
and of course you're going to take the money and I understand that but I just also think that they I think those that are running sport are consciously becoming more aware of their responsibilities as leaders but I guess you would, to put it another way if Tom Hotspur had a big gambling company sponsored the front of their show. Would you be, would you be disappointed? Yeah, enormously. I mean, I don't like the fact that they have a, a corporate relationship with William Hill, and I mention it on a regular basis. But you know, they, they quite often, you know, on my own Twitter feed, um, it'll come up as a William Hill promoted tweet. You know, I, I, I don't like it. Um, but Daniel's a businessman. A recent House of Lords committee that you had various representatives of the, the, the major gambling companies giving evidence. The question of affordability came up and I found that just quite interesting. Do you support limiting stakes across the board online, uh, even if somebody can afford to bet more on, on the premise that it will protect those who can't afford to bet more? So my honest answer is I don't know. Um, and one of the reasons why I don't know is that actually gambling addiction isn't just about... Um, those with lower incomes. I mean, I know, personally know, before I was even a minister, you know, very wealthy people who lost their livelihoods because of gambling. Um, it might not have started in an arcade, you know, or, um, or a bookmaker um, in the same way that those from lower income groups might start. But nevertheless, you know, they've lost their houses, their wives, their children because of gambling addiction. Um, so um, it is, I think, it, it would be wrong to just think this is about people who are unable to afford to lose anything. The thing is, is that it's relative, isn't it? So, you know, if I go into Bookmaker and lose 20 quid, um, it's, for me, it's 20 quid. If somebody who's on, you know, who's trade and 20 quid is a lot of money, you know, they have a choice of going down the pub with 20 quid or going to the bookmaker and losing 20 quid. You know, it's sort of kind of, that's a bit more of a different uh, answer really. But, um, so I don't really know. I don't really know. Some people have heard, uh, I think Ian Duncan Smith mentioned this, a big issue seemed to be that gambling has been normalised. And you mentioned you bet on football, I bet on football. But actually that's become normalised, almost betting in play on football, which perhaps 20 years ago it didn't happen. No, I disagree with that. I think, I think it has become normalised, but I, I think that we're wrong to think of it. this as a new phenomenon. My dad used to play the pools. You know, I used to help him sort of kind of, you know, put his little ticks in the boxes and so on. So I think that actually we've, the difference is things like in-play betting and stuff like that. That's where the sort of... Um, and, and I guess just the sheer volume of opportunities to bet. I mean, it's just, I'm an NFL fan, and you can bet on how long the national anthem is. You know, you can bet on um, whether or not a commentator is going to say helmet to helmet. You can bet on, you know, how many touchdowns there's going to be, and all this sort of stuff. And it's just, that's where things have gone slightly bizarre, I think, is the sheer breadth and depth of opportunities to bet I mean I don't know about you but uh, you know I placed a whole series of bets on the election last year um, on the number of seats that we're going to win because I I was slightly more pessimistic about our outcome I lost everything but you know I put £200 on the whole parliament because that was my insurance policy (laughs) (laughs) that it was 
I, I put five pounds on a spread of uh, seat outcomes from well, none of which came in because we got an 80 seat majority. But anyway, price worth paying. I yes, guess. I, I gave this question to Ian Douglas Smith, and, and again, I found it fascinating. I always say that every election there's a scramble about the NHS needs more money. It's always that it needs more money, but no one seems to ever ask, okay, how much do you need essentially for you to shut up saying it needs more money? Uh, you know, what will it take so that it's never mentioned again? So, with regards to gambling, how much money do you think, and there might not be an answer, that gambling companies need to contribute towards responsible gambling measures, education, and treatment? And I guess then, how does that compare against? other industries that, that, that have to contribute to their perceived ills, and I guess I'm thinking alcohol or obesity, are they contributing enough and how much do, do, would you say they need to contribute? So there's supposed to be a 1% levy on uh, bookmakers, um, and you know some do and some don't pay that. And um, I think that's the difference, it's voluntary. Um, and I think the bigger bookmakers meet their contributions but smaller bookmakers, not so much. And I think that's the problem, is that then there becomes this politics and in between them as to why, who's paying for what and why. Um, and, um, uh, but I, I, I just think that actually, it, it, in some cases, yes, education and research treatment are enormously important and they should be contributing towards it. But they should also just be doing things that don't cost their money in terms of you know, putting money into a, into a central government pot, but actually just making sure that the right safeguards are in place. Um, looking at their own practices and just thinking, are these the right things that we are doing? You know, VIP schemes, for example, bonus bets. You know, are those the right things that we should be doing in order to protect people from going from um, responsible gambler to harmful gambling to addiction? Um, and there are three stages in that journey and there's an opportunity for every point for a bookmaker to make that intervention. That, that leads me very nicely on to, to, to my next question. Uh, and it literally is, if I was in charge of, let's say, one of the biggest betting companies based in the UK but a, a global company, I'm in front of you now and I said, we need to have an adult conversation so that we can continue to, to operate and we're not hating. I said, what do I need to do so that you and your parliamentary colleagues will accept betting, you said that you like to bet, as a legitimate leisure pursuit and that we're seen to be doing the right things, what would you say, right, you know, here's the list of things that you now need to take action upon because you haven't done, and then perhaps we can start to engage a bit more and have this adult conversation. What needs to be done? Well, the first thing I'd say is treat your online the same way you treat your retail. So if you are a retail bookmaker, like you know, Paddy Power or William Hill, Labrooks or Coral, whoever, you have staff who have that face-to-face -face relationship with their punters day in, day out, who can make those interventions and do make those interventions. And the staff and the bookmakers that are brilliant, you know, so many times they will say to somebody, are you sure? Do you want to take a period of self-exclusion? Do you want to sort of kind of um, step back from this? Let's have a look at your behaviours. They, they are so well trained to make those interventions, and they do. What they don't do is have that same level of intervention online. And I think, therefore, if you are a bookmaker, and now every bookmaker has an online offering, behave like you would 
in your shops online. One of your former parliamentary colleagues, Michael Duggar, has taken over, I think, just now as CEO of the Bettingham Gaming Council. What advice do you have for him, if any? Be be honest. Um, uh, don't necessarily dig down. I mean, the previous um, chief exec of the ABB, as it was then, the Association of British Bookmakers, was a real sort of kind of head in the sand kind of person. You know, no, it's all fine. There's no problem here. Nothing to see here. Go away. You know, it's just all these do-gooder, virtual signaling politicians who you know don't understand that this is a leisure pursuit for vast you know majority of people. Um, and actually, it didn't really take into account there were significant problems and that there was a great deal of harm that was being um, dealt with. There was no understanding that people were taking their own lives because of gambling. And I think actually, you know, there has to be a bit more sensitivity and a bit more understanding and reality as to, you know, what's going on. What do you imagine might be the next thing coming the gambling sector's way? Could it be legislation, do you think, if, if things don't move? Is it self-regulation? Is it the Gambling Commission with more teeth? Is it all of the above? Um, I don't think there is an element of all of the above. Um, there will be, and there is, it's much needed, a wholesale review of the Gambling Act. Um, you know, the Gambling Act is an analogue piece of legislation in a digital age. No doubt about it. It needs to be reviewed. Um, the problems that we face today didn't even exist um, when the 2005 Act um, went through. Um, and I think that unless the industry embraces the review, offers opportunity for improvement and change, then politicians will end up doing it for them. And that's not necessarily, you know, the perfect outcome for the for, for everybody. Yeah, we do understand, politicians do understand, that the vast majority of people gamble responsibly. But there is a significant chunk of people um, I think it's now 1.7 million people who are at risk of harm from gambling. And, you know, that is a significant chunk. We're seeing an increase in the number of women who are problem gamblers. Um, we're seeing an increase in the number of children who are problem gamblers. Um, because of um, changes that we've made already um, to, to FOGTIs and stuff, we still need to look at low-income groups as, as, a, as an issue. However, not only, given what I said earlier, you know, that's not only the problem. Um, so there will be a review of the Gambling Act and they need to embrace it. And given that there's a big majority, what kind of timescale would you like to see with regards to all of this sooner rather than later? Do you see this happening? Well, no, knowing how long it takes to do anything in order to not get sued by the gambling industry, it needs to start soon. If, if, if we're going to go into the next election having done it, having met a manifesto commitment, um, the, um, the, I mean, it goes without saying that the, the bookmaking industry is, is rather, you know, litigious, judicious, whichever way you wish to put it. So making sure that we follow absolute process will mean that it's a good three-year, four-year process. So the sooner it gets started, the better. There's supposedly an imminent reshuffle, so to use a sporting analogy, uh, is Tracy Crouch getting back in the game? Not yet, she's not. She's still on the sidelines tying her boots. <laughs> well, but if, if the Prime Minister, you know, rang and said, oh, you know, We'd love you to serve back at DCMS. We're all led to believe that, that, that Nicky Morgan was overseeing things. Wouldn't you find it a little bit a little bit hard to not want to come back? It's the best job in government. And I loved my three and a half years um, in 
DCMS, there were things on my task list that I hadn't finished that I want to, you know, continue to do and pick back up. But I said last July when I was in contention for um, the DCMS Secretary of State role that my son was born into this world while I was a minister. Um, he starts school in September. I've had a real opportunity now to sort of kind of spend some really valuable time nurturing, doing the nurturing stuff. He starts school in six months' time and, and, you know, after that, get him settled, then maybe, you know, I will turn to government. But, you know, if the opportunity is afforded again. But at the moment, you know, I have to sort of kind of, recon- you know, I have to consider my family as priority. Tracy Crouch, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. To discuss sponsorship opportunities, email editor at toryradio.com. Do it now.